Well, we've been going uh, through this series, All Things New, looking at Genesis 1 and 2, the story of creation, and the Spirit of God who hovers over the surface of the deep and brings about, as God announces creation, brings about the new. And then tying that into the New Testament picture of the Holy Spirit who comes to bring about the new creation and the new creation in our own lives as well as in the world around us. The Spirit of God is in the business of bringing new things. And we've looked a couple of weeks ago about the fact that in creation, very clearly in Genesis 1, it talks about as being created in the image and likeness of God. That God forms us in a way that is like and in the image of God. But, but somehow in, uh, in humanity, that image and likeness of God has been broken and lost. And so God comes to us again in Christ and in the Spirit to reform us and to renew us back into the likeness and the image of God. And so what we see in Genesis is God forming and then filling. And similarly, in our lives, God is forming and filling us into this new creation. But as we move into Genesis chapter 2, we move into the second creation narrative. And the second creation narrative in Genesis 1 and 2 is different. It feels different. It, it, it looks different. It is different. It has a, a different order to Genesis chapter 1. Things happen in a different way and in a different order. Um, Adam comes before Eve in this narrative rather than both being created at the same time. Um, Adam or humanity is created before there seems to be vegetation on the land. He's created before animals, although he gets to name animals. At Genesis chapter 1, humanity is described in a way that they seem to be the master of life on earth. But in Genesis 2, humanity now is told to serve the earth. In Genesis 1, things are good and even very good. In Genesis 2, well, we begin to hear something about good and bad in talking about a tree that is there and things that might not be good. And even the whole feel of it is that it moves from a Genesis 1 where there's this kind of cosmic, awesome greatness of God, the creator, speaking, announcing, and, and everything comes into being in word and spirit from a great cosmic reality to something very earthy, literally, as we'll discover, a narrative of creation that is from the earth. We, we move from an eyes up and around to eyes down and about in the earth. Genesis 1 ends with humanity, the pinnacle, but Genesis 2 and then into 3 takes that pinnacle and goes even deeper. What about this humanity? What about them? Genesis 1 seems to represent creation's cosmic crescendo, culminating in the pinnacle of humanity and in humanity's intimate relation with God. And it was very good. And then Genesis 2 and 3 takes us to that humanity 
and it goes a little bit deeper. So let's read with that little bit of background, that differentness between Genesis 1 and 2. And let's look at maybe what Genesis 2 then is saying. And we're going to begin at verse 4 in Genesis chapter 2. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. And scholars are not too sure whether this refers back to chapter 1 or on to chapter 2. And so often they just put it as a single block in the Bible. And then, you know, you can make up your own mind on it. Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord formed a man from the dust of the ground. Now, do you see that movement in Genesis chapter 1 from the cosmic picture to now something very intimate? Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now we'll just pause there. In Genesis 1, we have God speaking and announcing to the face of the cosmic deep. Whatever that universal space might have consisted of. But now in Genesis 2, he gets down into the face and the dirt and the ground of earth. Now, there's something beautiful about that. That that God in Genesis chapter 2 is not the one who stays at a distance, apparently just announcing and creating, but that he, in Genesis 2, comes right down into the mud where he molds and creates us. Well, that's a much more intimate picture. That is a much more hands-on God who begins to make and mold. And Adam is formed from the Hebrew word for ground. Adam is formed from Adama, meaning the ground. That's where we take his name from. Adama literally means ground. And Adam, therefore, is an earthling, literally from the earth. Not not some outer space earthling, just from the earth. And what we see in this picture of creation is the intimate involvement of God in making, and then as we'll find as we go through the scripture, in remaking us in Christ and in the Holy Spirit. And as we project forward, you know, the story of the incarnation, the reality of God come to earth in Christ is that similar reality that God is not keep himself at a distance, but instead he comes into the realities of this world, your world, my world, our world, into the earthiness of it. And from there he makes and molds even us, the intimate involvement of God. And that word that is used for forming, the Lord God formed a man from the dust, is the word yasar. I think this word is up here. The Hebrew word, which it doesn't really mean create. It means to touch and gently form or to hold or mold. 
And so the image that we really have, and it's a significant image, and it's why we sang the song we just did a few moments ago, is of a potter at the wheel, at the pottery wheel, forming and shaping in a very intimate way what he holds in his hands. I think that's an outstanding picture of, of God who holds us in his hands to gently mold us. Hold us and mold us. It's a very different creation story from the one that we read in Genesis chapter 1 because it has something else to say about this great God, the greatness of God, and now the closeness of God in creation. The potter with the clay, carefully, intimately, lovingly shaping. And that's what God longs to do in our lives, to hold and to mold in ways that will form us into the image and likeness of God all over again. And then as he does so, he breathes into Adam. He breathes within Adam to gift and give life. And again, it's a great picture of the breath of God, which often we associate with the life of the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Spirit to bring us life and new life within us. Not just physical life, but spiritual life as the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is breathed within us. Now, these are deep, deeply personal images of God. We must abandon any sense of God being up there and us being down here. That's not what the Bible teaches of God. It's not even what the first two chapters of Scripture teaches about God, but rather of a God who is intimately involved in his creation and longs to be intimately involved in our lives. Human life is an intimate and beautiful gift. Not a right, but a gift. I became so aware of this when, when, I, when I was ill in, in 2012, uh, diagnosed with uh, stage three cancer. And, and the sense of the fact that life is a gift was overwhelming. Not a right, but a gift. And this intimate picture of God as the one who is with us and gives life to us as an intimate and beautiful gift. And it is out of that sense of this beautiful gift that we've been given of life, that we don't, we're not the people who are always making demands because this is my right, but rather we live it as a gift. And love of God and one another. <clears throat> this gift of life. <clears throat> the intimacy of God who has created us and breathed this gift of life into us. Let's be thankful, people of God. Whatever is happening, this life comes as a gift to us. Well, let's go on, Genesis 2. Uh, let's pick up at verse 8. Now, the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees, grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is this Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone, but I will make a suitable helper for him. Well, let's just pause there. Now we're introduced to the garden that is a part of this creating that God is doing. And it seems to be a garden that God has planted and has tended. It already has in place a new beauty that the rest of creation does not yet have. All kinds of good and pleasing trees. And also the tree of life. And the tree of good and evil or good and bad, we'll come back to that later. And then all of these rivers that are there. And it's a picture of abundance, of fruitfulness. Uh, even the rivers flowing, there's an abundance of them as this river flows out. And it's setting the scene of what God is about to instruct and about what is about to unfold. This picture of, of the beauty and fruitfulness and abundance and generosity of creation. God has given so much. The garden and the creation is filled with God's transcendent glory and presence. It's greatness, but it's also closeness. It's both and. And the garden is infused with life. But there's potential for more life. It's not that that's just it. But there's potential for ongoing life. A profusion, a proliferation, a procreation of life. As God and humanity walk and work together. It holds within it all the potential for this ongoing fruitfulness. And the expanding of creation. And man and women, male and female, humanity, will be part of this extending and expanding of the beauty of this creation. And the river, the river in the garden, that will appear again in Scripture, in Ezekiel, in Jesus, in Revelation. It's a life-giving river. It's bringing life wherever it flows. And again, the Spirit of God is often Understood as a river, we, we might talk a little more about that next week when we have our baptismal uh, service. What does, it, what does it mean for us to think about the Spirit as water and as river? But this river brings about abundance of life. And again, it all seems very good. Just as in Genesis 1, it was seen as very good. 
But that's the backdrop for God's new purposes and plan. There is such potential in creation, such fullness, but it needs attention. So let's read on. Verse 15. The Lord God took the man. We're going to go back a little bit here. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now, what is happening here? Well, there's three things that are are happening. God is giving Adam and to humanity, first of all, a vocation. Adam is to serve the Adama, the ground, the creation, to realize creation's fruitfulness. Work is good. I think sometimes we, we maybe have a picture in our mind that in creation, in Eden, there was no work. We just kind of lazed by the pool and kind of had a break. Well, that, that's not, that, Genesis 2 doesn't give us that option. That humanity was created to work along with God in the fruitfulness of creation. There was a vocation given to Adam, given to humanity. And it's good. It has divine purpose and origins. Our work, what we do, has divine purpose and origins. It's part of creation. It's not a consequence of the fall. Oh, we all fell and now we've got to work. No, it's part of creation. God made us that we would work, walk and work with him to bring about the fruitfulness of his creation and of his creative reign. God works and we work. And we and God work together in the work of God, in God's work. And so what we do and how we do it matters. But the question I want to ask is this morning, does what we do and how we do it serve God's plans and purposes? Or do we need to think about doing something else? Or do we need to think about how we do what we do? Does what we do serve or savage the earth? Does what we do care for it? Does it protect or destroy the equity and harmony of humanity? Does it contribute to the good work of God and his purposes in the world? Now, I asked Jack if it was all right if I shared his story, but um, if you haven't seen social media uh, this week, then you've missed Jack's story. Jack, give us a wave in case anyone doesn't know you. Jack was, uh, works in Marks and Spencers as a, a barista. He's far more than a barista, though, let me tell you. And he was uh, recommended from his local uh, Marks and Spencers uh, to go for an award in London for a top barista in Marks and Spencers. And that, that's, that's what he went for. And uh, he made it to the last four, was it? Last 12. last 12. I mean, that's a pretty great accolade to begin with. But uh, when he had finished his first trip down or his first uh, um, involvement in in this award, they asked him if he would come back. And they asked if he would come back to judge uh, the kind of final uh, group of baristas which he agreed to do. Unbeknown to him, actually he had been so impressed with Jack and had heard so many stories about the way in which he worked from colleagues and those who'd met him 
that although they called him down under the notion of judging all the other baristas, actually what they wanted to do was start a new award in his name. An award about the way in which we care for those that we meet and serve. And you know Jack, most of you. You can understand why someone like Jack would be made for such an award. But what I want us to understand is work is good. What we have to ask ourselves is the work I do contributing into that which God is doing? And are we doing it in a way that contributes to what God wants to do? In the care, not just of his creation, but of humanity. Vocation, what we do, is part of creation, not part of the fall. The question is, how do we do it? Well, along with vocation, um, in this part of the creation narrative, there's also permission. Permission. Freedom to eat from trees of every kind that were pleasing to the eye, that were good for food. That great abundance and fruitfulness. It's a sign of God's generous provision. There's more than enough. And there's permission and freedom to enjoy it. While also to work, to serve it, to care for it, to protect it. We can enjoy it, but we've got to serve the creation as well and care for it. Scarcity of food or resources is not on God. He's provided more than enough. But it's on our excessive consumption or hoarding or wasting of created resources. And that's why permission to enjoy all that God has given and vocation, caring, for what God has given us must come together. Otherwise, we stop caring. And that's where the inequality and the waste results. And then something that was given to us that has enough, some do not have enough. That's not on God's shoulders. That vocation and permission must come together. And then there's a prohibition. You could eat of all of this, but not this tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or good and bad. Now, I spoke about this a couple of weeks ago. But in short, this is about human freedom. And who will we trust? Well, we trust God who gives his, his way, his command, his prohibitions. Or will we decide, we'll decide what is good and bad, good and evil, and we'll just go our own ways. Or will we trust the creator? We live and work according to the creator's ways. Walter Brueggemann writes this, and the, the quote is on the screen. How do we live with the creation in God's world on God's terms? Are there modes of knowledge that come at too high a cost? It asks if there are boundaries before which one must bow, even if one could no more. It probes the extent to which one may order one's life autonomously without reference to any limit or prohibition. So what is being urged, if not knowledge? Ignorance? No, not ignorance, but trust. Trust. 
and in our lives. I want us to ask the question, really, who am I trusting? Am I trusting in the God who does at times give prohibitions? Just because we can seek more doesn't mean we should seek more in any particular way or direction. In this freedom of choice, around whom and what will you order your life? When we have all this freedom to choose what and who we follow and around what and who we will order our lives, will we order them around God as an expression of our trust in the one who created us, even when it means prohibition amongst all the permission? Well, let's go on, verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam... No suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she, has taken out of, she was taken out of man. That's not woman, that's a woman. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Humanity is not created for isolation, but for relationship, for community. God's image and likeness is about relationship, the community. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with us, and us with Him, and us with one another. We were created not for isolation, but for relationship. And the question that I wrestled with in this text this week is, who will be this suitable helper? Now, there's a really interesting kind of drama and dramatic delay in the answering of this question. Because in response to uh, this awareness that the man needed a suitable helper, what's the next thing that happened? It's not, the, it's not the woman who appears, it's animals. As if, well, are animals, are they going to be the suitable helper that the man needs to do all that he is going to do? And there's this kind of dramatic delay as if they might be the suitable helper. Actually, I think what's going on in those moments is it's more about the introduction of speech and speaking and the naming of the animals in preparation for this relational living with God and with one another in community. Because once he's gone through the animals, the writer comes back to the proper suitable helper for Adam. And a community is made, but what kind of community was it? Well, I want to say three things just quickly. First of all, this is a community established in creation of equality. What does a helper mean? Now, in Scripture, if you 
were to do a word search on the word helper, you'll discover that tends to be used of who? God. It's used of God, who is our helper. The one who is greater and able to help. Well, whatever this might be, it's certainly not a subordination of women who are a helper. This is not subordination. This is equality. That together, male and female, will form this new community. But there is diversity. They are different. What does a suitable helper mean? Well, the word for suitable is neged. I love this word. It describes wonderfully what is going on here. Neged means one that stands opposite to you. One who stands over against him. One boldly in front of him. Or, I love this, in his face. There's a differentness. Rightly. Different from, yet an equal to. So that there can be both companionship together, but also counterpart. There is reason for that different. And so there's equality, there's diversity, and then there's mutuality. That they would serve one another and they would serve together. Male and female are to live and work and serve together with God. Relational, vocational, and in their physical sexual unity that will release the fruitful potential of creation in every way. A community of equality, of diversity, and mutuality, where love for each other and love for God, a new community of love. Well, let's round some of this off. This is how chapter 2 finishes. Verse 25. And Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Wow. And they felt no shame. Chapter 2 is equivalent to chapter 1's, it was good and it was very good. I think it's this phrase here. They felt no shame. I, I don't know about you, but that, that sounds like a good place to be. It sounds like a good headspace and heart space to be. And they felt no shame. It feels like a great way to live without shame. What a gift. But the gift is found in the place of absolute trust in the Creator. That's what Genesis 2 has set in place. This place of trust in the great creator and in that place of absolute trust when eyes and heart and lives are just set on him and they were without no shame naked and without shame but this is where the human problem begins who are we truly trusting for it has real consequences let me read Verses 7 to 10 of the next chapter. When Adam and Eve 
choose to eat of the very tree that God had told them not to eat of. Verse 7. Once they'd eaten, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden and in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid. Because I was naked, so I hid. And they turned their trust, absolutely, their trust in God the Creator, and they began to trust another way, and even themselves, their own judgment of what was good and bad and right and wrong. And as they did so, as they shifted that trust, so the arrival of shame accompanied accompanied that shift of trust. For sure, freedom had been exercised. And freedom has the potential for us to choose well. And we might assume that Adam and Eve up until this point were choosing well. But that decision to choose well is also a decision to trust. To trust God. But now trust has been broken. Humanity has chosen itself over God, has chosen self-determination, and sin has entered, and shame is the residue, and it's felt personally and collectively, and they both hide, and that's been the reality of humanity, even ours. Shame is the residue of the broken trust. And we hide. Shame is an alert to sin. And an alarm that we need to get back to God. It reminds us that we've strayed and broken trust in the good creator. And instead, it turns us towards realizing we need him all over again. And our attempts to rid or ignore or deny or explain away shame, that simply hinders us instead of letting it lead us back to God. Our culture has a tendency to want to make every choice and every action right in order to nullify any sense of shame. And it's a dangerous distortion of freedom. Leon Cass writes this, a free choice is not necessarily a good choice. We have freedom, but not every free choice is a good choice. And when we start to nullify things and say, well, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't feel any shame and everything is right, we will live with shame all our lives. Because the removal of shame is only found in a new trust and a returning to the Almighty God who was out looking for them so that he could come to them and renew them and remake them and remold them and even clothe them 
their shame is substituted instead for the love of God. And for as long as we keep denying that there's anything wrong and we can just choose whatever we want because we're free to choose, as long as that keeps happening, we will just accumulate our personal and collective sense of shame because it can only be dealt with in our return to God and to trust in him. The no shame beauty of Eden was shattered when we decided that we will determine what is good and bad, right or wrong, when we decide to trust ourselves over God. And chapter two is characterized by trust. And chapter three is characterized by distrust. And instead of returning to God, they hid. And we hid. From no shame to shame. But that's not the end of the story. Back to the potter theme that we started with. Because God still longs to be intimately involved with us in spite of what may have happened in our lives and in spite of the shame we may feel personally or even collectively. God still longs to be intimately involved with us and to restore us and to make all things new. In the same way that he lovingly shaped and molded us and breathed life into us, so now he lovingly longs to reshape remold, to renew us in Christ, to refill us with Holy Spirit. The potter has not discarded the clay, but welcomes us and draws us and brings us back onto the wheel where he can work again close, intimately with us. Here's what Isaiah 64, 8 says. All of us have become like one who is unclean, And all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf. And like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you. For you've hidden your face from us and you have given us over to our sins. Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. God still wants to be at work in your life. Whatever your history has been, whatever your past is, whatever your recent past is, whatever even your today is, God has not disappeared. He's the potter. We're the clay. And he longs to bring us back close to him so that he can form and mold us. Do you know God's action and reaction to Adam and Eve? He went looking for them. He went looking for them. He was in the garden calling for them. The pursuing heart of God that comes after us to find us, to renew us, to remold us, to breathe again his life and spirit within us, to bring us back into his image and likeness, back into the garden, the place of no shame. Oh, thank God. Thank God that he comes looking for us to bring us out of the no shame, or out of the shame into the no shame all over again. To bring us back in close to him, the intimacy of the potter, where once again he molds us so that he can fill us and breathe life into us. 
God, you are the potter, and I am the clay. Come mold me again. Take those pieces that are, are, are sticking out and on the edges and bring them back in. And breathe new life as you mold me again. What a great deal of sorrow we carry when we ignore the potter's voice, when we decline the potter's call to come back. New life, new hope, new forgiveness, new love, new grace, new freedom is found there in the goodness of God's hands, the one who is the potter, as we are the clay. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. Shall we pray together? <clears throat> Lord, all kinds of voices would tell us uh, that we're not good enough, that we've gone too far, that we failed again, and that you would have nothing to do with us, but that's not the truth. The truth is you come looking for us, longing to hold us back in in your hands in a way that you can remold us again. Thank you, Lord, that the final word of Scripture is not that we have to stay in shame, but rather you lead us back into no shame in Christ and the Spirit. Lord, what a gift. What a relief. And Lord, for those of us who perhaps look back in our life and, and we wonder if ever there can be a way back, thank you, God, there is always a way back in Jesus. There's always a way back to the potter's hands. And thank you that, Lord, you have given us that freedom to choose, but thank you that it is a different type of freedom and it comes in Christ that your grace and love has come to us to give us a new freedom, but it's a freedom to live in line with the Father, in line with the Creator, with His ways, not our own ways. For there, there is great freedom, where our chains are gone, where we are set free, where we move from shame to no shame. Oh God, thank you for the gift of this in Christ Jesus and in the Holy Spirit where all things can be made new again in you.